0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Climate Transformed. I'm here today with Laura Fox for a conversation on the growth of urban mobility systems. Now, Laura has been on with us before, but for those of you who haven't met Laura, she's the outgoing GM of City Bikes, where she oversees strategy growth, um, pretty much the whole shebang for City Bikes. It's a global role you have?
1: It's US, yeah.
0: Got it. I was counting before how many cities I've been on a City Bike, and I think it's 11, I think it's now something like that. Um, But as I said, outgoing general manager of City Bikes, and Laura is about to become, in the months ahead, one of the co-founders of a new VC, which is called Street Life, just when you thought all the good names were taken, which focuses on the intersection between cities and climate, which again, I'm gonna get into that at length because I find that fascinating, and that's why we are here. Everyone, as per normal, I have no monopoly on good questions, so please pop them into the chat function at the bottom of the screen. We will get to that over the course of the next hour or so. Laura, tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. There's obviously a lot I've left out of your very comprehensive CV, and I never do these things justice. So I'm going to let you elaborate a little bit further about how you got to where you are today.
1: Thanks so much for the already warm and generous introduction. And it's great to be here in the company of people who are working every day to change the future of the planet, cities, and all of these places that we call home. My background has been focused on how do you improve quality of life in cities for the last 15 years. That started, funny enough, with a focus on how cultural institutions and creative economy development affects local communities, places, cities. Wrote a lot about that, moved to Qatar in the Middle East, worked for their museum's authority, focused on kind of this urban transformation that was taking place through culture. And it's there that I had a number of transformational moments, but particularly from a career perspective, I was walking around Doha, the capital city in Qatar, and there's no sidewalks and no buses, no affordable housing, lack of human rights, and had a moment in my career where I realized that I needed to go down Maslow's hierarchy and really focus on these elements that do make cities fundamentally great when you think about transportation, buildings, built environment, sustainable infrastructure, and things like that. So briefly went to Bangladesh to work on some urban slum development, and then to NYU for my MBA where... I went there because I had an urbanization project embedded into the business school and so got to work with them globally on projects with cities. Probably most impactful one for my career thinking at that time was a project with Mexico City where Mexico City had come to us asking for support on affordable housing and what they should do. I think that they were expecting that we would come back and suggest things like inclusionary zoning laws that exist in New York and other parts of the U.S. Instead, we came back and said, hey, we've actually done a big piece of financial analysis, pulled in all of your land use database, brought in private sector developer incentives and layered on your regulations. And it's in fact, the existing regulations that you have that are preventing kind of private sector developers from building middle income and lower income housing. And so it was a really impactful moment for me where I started to think a lot about what are the best intentions, actions, right, that are done from a policy perspective that can actually have pretty consequential outcomes if we don't layer in kind of financials and business fundamentals. I then went from business school to work for the Boston Consulting Group, where I worked a lot with the Boston Consulting Group's Digital Ventures Group to build and launch mobility startups for corporates globally. I also worked with Bloomberg Philanthropies on Thinking through their investment strategy, restructuring their marriage challenge into more venture-like competition. Then went to Sidewalk Labs, where I led the Master Innovation and Development Plan for the City of Toronto. Did a lot of diligence on urban technology companies. And then the last four years have been the general manager for Bike here in New York. And I'm also on the board of Governor's Island, which is set up to be New York City's kind of climate test bed. To think about, like, how do we generate these next ideas and teach an MBA strategy class at NYU? And so i really explored all of these areas over the course of my career. A good friend calls my career and background the forest, and hers is like the straight line for the forest. She's like, real estate, real estate, real estate. I'm like, how do we think about these many different aspects that we need to bring together to make places great?
0: We'll get into the sort of the nuances of the forest you know, in a minute. <laughs> but was the forest, was that an organic pathway to, to becoming a VC? Was this just an, a natural next step or was this part of the plan?
1: Yeah, pretty natural. Across my career, I'm a big believer in experimentation and test and learn. And so there's probably something else that I'm doing outside of my day-to-day job at any given point in time, just based on a set of interests. So when I was at BCG, I was editing a book for a mentor at NYU called Order Without Design, which all focused on how do we take more economic private business principles and apply that to urban development? What would be the different ways that we would think about that? And that led me to parts of my next step for the last five years. I've been mentoring and advising a number of early stage mobility and climate companies, kind of attacking problems across the urban spectrum. And so have kind of continuously talked about what's the right business model. How do I connect you to a VC and talk about why you're investable and why the business model is really interesting? As opposed to, especially in the mobility space, what we typically see invested in and is like larger big EV transitions have been the number one investment the last three years within climate too. Uh, how do I support on how to think about working with cities and policy partnerships and pilots and what does that look like? And so, notice that I've spent a lot of time thinking about how we create impact across this urban stack and urban space, especially when it comes to climate. I've been reading a lot of the IPCC reports, I'm sure a lot of folks have here, like the next 10 to 15 years are going to be critical. And so, how do we accelerate that change? And so, I would say the strategy, big picture thinking, plus, like in the trenches of building and scaling a company to like City Bike to Millionaire, ARR, plus supporting all these early stage startups is kind of more of a coalition of experiences as opposed to straight line investment banking to something like venture capital. And it's led to a pretty different perspective on how we think about building uh, street life as a venture capital firm, which is that we are really interested in the impact that these entrepreneurs can and will have in cities. And as part of that, that means thinking about things like the capital stack from the beginning, thinking about how you partnership with cities from the beginning, thinking about all sorts of non-dilutive grants from the beginning. And so we're setting up entrepreneurs from the earliest stage to do that. And then the fund is structured in two different ways, one, a traditional venture capital firm, and then second, a catalytic capital side that's taking in venture philanthropy to help invest in, first of its kind, place-based projects where we're partnering with cities to allow these startups to do early stage deployments. And where city policymakers are deeply embedded in, in some of that work. And we're providing the capital. Oftentimes, cities have the spaces, right, for some of this experimentation, might have the impulse for the regulatory, but don't have the budget. And so, this is solving some of the budget problem and bringing expertise on the private sector side.
0: One last question before you dive into the presentation Do you see a scenario where cities who have a really strong vested interest in making this happen, right, are equity partners, are catalytic partners with your young entrepreneurs, with yourself, in terms of achieving circularity goals?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that that's been a question. That's been an experiment that's been done with not in the climate space, but we NYC is a kind of incubator of the city invests some degree of equity in New York for female entrepreneurs specifically, right? Trying to solve some of the gender gaps that we oftentimes see in entrepreneurship. So that model exists. It's been seen in other places at a state level, NYSERDA and first state development and others are set up to take equity stakes in businesses in addition to help fund through things like green banks and others and so i think that there's a number of models like that that can be scaled and should given if you have keen city partners who are excited to do some of this work they're spending a lot of staff time and energy right it both aligns the incentives and also sees returns funneling back to that city in that place over time i think kind of talk through a little bit of this in terms of background. I've lived in a number of cities around the world, and you can oftentimes hear me showing from the rooftops on all of these topics. And so if we go to the next slide, this talk is specifically focused on mobility as one of the biggest climate problems that isn't yet being solved or even really being properly discussed today, which is Um, Pretty crazy um, when you think about it. So COP, the first transportation dedicated day was in 2019. And so last year, COP27 was only the third year of having some dedicated time on the agenda, which again, pretty crazy because 21% of global emissions are from transportation, largest global emission source. And it's growing incredibly fast. We've seen 80% growth in the transportation sector from emissions since 1990, and that's outpacing any other industry. It's in fact 12 times faster than buildings, which is a sector that we spent a lot of time talking about. There is some hope on the transportation side, though, that, and that there's a lot of great impact that can be had in this space, and that 50% of trips in US cities are less than three miles, and that's likely to increase in the coming years given. A commute to and from work is typically the longest trip that folks are taking with hybrid work commutes. We're probably going to see that grow even further. And so there's a lot of short trips out there that we can impact. Go to the next slide. When we do talk about reducing emissions within transportation, we tend to focus on one big area, which is electric cars, (laughs) COP26. So the second time that there was a dedicated transportation day, focused entirely on electric cars, and presidents of scientists have touted them as game changer, um, and game changers. We've probably all seen President Biden in big <laughs> electric SUVs and trucks as at press conferences, and so it's perhaps no wonder that we see investors doing the same of all climate-focused investments, and that's across all topics that we might discuss in Climate Transformers probably covering 50% of those investments were in a better car. So whether that's an electric car, battery tech, and others. And so if we go to the next slide, a better car though, isn't the answer. I'm not entirely an answer. I really think that cars can be great for certain types of trips, but that we need to reconsider some of this historical independence. So First, on the urban congestion side, they don't have urban congestion uh, EVs. They don't help in creating more efficient labor markets, right? Cities inherently are labor markets and highly dependent on how quickly or easily it is for someone to get to and from their choice of job, how many jobs are available. We think about kind of macroeconomic fluidity. And so congestion costs cities like New York, something like $30 billion in lost wages per year. We also kind of from a personal perspective, know that there's steep declines in happiness when people live an hour or more from years from their job. And then when we look at just efficiency on a per lane basis, bike lanes are something like, 5 to 15x more efficient than a vehicle lane, transit 5 to 40x more efficient, and so really see a lot more efficiency when we think about different ways of getting people around, and then secondly. And really importantly for this conversation, big EVs also don't solve emissions to the degree that we need them to. So even assuming a relatively clean grid, big EVs reduce emissions by about 50%. Unfortunately, in the U.S., assumptions of clean grids aren't good ones. (laughs) I'm originally from Chicago. My dad is incredibly proud of the fact that he's buying an EV later this year, and I've struggled to convince him of the data, which is that in Chicago, it's better to have a hybrid than an EV because the grid is so dirty, and it's hard for him to believe given what he's reading in the news and hearing that it's a single most impactful thing that he can do to reduce his own emissions. And that's kind of building on the fact that when folks are choosing a next vehicle, unfortunately, they're oftentimes upgrading to a larger one right now. We're seeing that 75% of new vehicle purchases in the U.S. are SUVs. And so this decrease of 50% gets even more dubious and smaller based on upgrading to larger, heavier vehicles. And then the other challenge that we have to fight here is that If we're just thinking about an ice to electric transition, that there's real infrastructure challenges. So it'll cost, if everyone makes that transition, something like $125 billion to upgrade the grid in the U.S. to accommodate EVs. And in the recent U.S. infrastructure bill, the largest in the U.S. in decades, it was only allocated about $5 billion to start doing some of these grid upgrades. So lots of other really interesting technology that's being developed around microgrids and things like that, but obviously that's small in comparison to some of the big grid upgrade work. So taking things back to the fact base, like what solves for emissions to the degree that we need to? And as we begin to think about the mobility ecosystem and what's necessary to reduce emissions, there are some tailwinds. First, a number of countries are beginning to not only sign climate pledges, but to make laws around climate reduction, which create clear carrots and sticks for folks to transition across industry. And we see real differences in actions between countries at a pledge level and those who've taken bigger policy steps. So I want to highlight two that have incorporated climate mandates into laws. So on the next slide, you know, an example that's familiar to a number of folks within the mobility space in particular, but has had incredible benefits is London's ultra low emission zone. So it was expanded in 2021 to 140 square miles. That's 3.5 million people in the city of London and led to nearly 75% of Londoners changing mode of transport. And just a couple of weeks ago, TfL, which is the transportation for London, observed that cyclists are now the largest vehicular mode in London at commute hours, so nearly 40% of trips. So it really saw dramatic changes in terms of how folks chose transportation options and modes, given some of those regulatory systems. And then the next slide, the Netherlands has set zero emissions on delivery and urban logistics, which was introduced in 2021, including 30 of its largest cities. And so we're already seeing an increase in collaboration across sectors, switches to cargo bikes and trikes, urban consolidation centers and a lot of things that formerly most folks in the private sector was that were too expensive and or involved too much of a rethink of supply chain. So policymakers can be market makers. And we see a lot of really interesting, impactful downstream private sector impacts from some of this work so on the next slide. So for me, sitting in the seat of saying, like, we know that EVs aren't the only answer and countries are beginning to make laws that can radically reduce emissions. Like, what can we do? We need more infrastructure investment, more fundamental reimagining of the status quo, more incentives to change behavior. And so one of the things that I've struggled with here is a common framework and vocabulary to talk about the changes needed across investors, startups, governments, and more. And the mental model that I've started using is this stack that you see here and what I've started calling the more framework. And so there's four layers here, and I'll start from the bottom. So E for enable elapsed governments, businesses, individuals to assess plan measure for mobility interventions, from things like congestion reduction to climate mitigation and reduction, rebuild. There's a pretty staggering stat from the Rockefeller Foundation that states that 75% of urban infrastructure needed by 2050 doesn't exist today. So that's a lot of work that we have to do in the urban environment, both physical as well as digital. So digital might be managing our streets in a different way. Physical could be sustainable, concrete, porous concrete, electrification infrastructure. The third area here offer, this is a category that many of us probably spend our time thinking about, like what's the bike, car, pedestrian, transit experience that we have. And I spent a lot of time at City Bike working on in terms of urban mobility solutions that help people get around. And so innovations in transit, micro pedestrian access that span a range of topics. And then last, uh, but certainly not least, is maintain. I know a lot of people don't like to talk about maintenance because it's not sexy. As someone who used to run an urban transportation network of nearly 30,000 bikes, a and have issues and could definitely keep you up at night, maintenance is incredibly sexy as a topic because it really means that you're translating your goals for how something could work to how it's actually working and providing trips to riders, reducing emissions and others. And so I'll go through each of these layers and introduce some pain points and some of the players solving them. I think a lot of folks know these layers intuitively, and you're probably each doing something transformative at one or more of them already. So I'm excited to talk more about that later. So if we go to the next slide. So in the four layers of this MORE framework, E stands for enable. Next slide. There's a lot of ways to segment this space, but I'll focus on three areas, assess and plan, and then two segments for measurement, both for governments and businesses. Um, each of these segments have their own pain points and opportunities. So go to the next slide. One of the things that I want to focus on is the assessment plan area. And in particular, a pain point and problem area here is that it often takes two to three years of planning to make any roadway changes today. And the, there's limited operational budgets for ongoing insights after implementation. And this two to three year period, it doesn't pass by quickly. It's full of pain points. There's no single model and point of truth. There's oftentimes disagreements on baselines that can make something that should be more analytical into more of a political exercise and leave room for loud voice NIMBYs, which I'm sure all of us are familiar with across our cities. So on the next slide, a great startup who's operating in this space is called Climate View they provide something called a climate OS platform, which helps model complex sets of plans and interventions against rigorous baselines that are set on a per city basis. And so this creates a central source for tracking process and laying on added interventions to climate goals. So uh, ranges from EVs, bike lanes, bike share, transit congestion schemes, and so much more. And it gives really clear visibility for cities. And you can also publish it to citizens and others so that you can be tracking and sharing these insights ongoing. And this really speaks to me because there's a great point, a great story of like a paper-based version of this that um, I heard while working with New York City DOT and the Department of Transportation, which is that, you know, Janet Sada Khan, who's a legendary Department of Transportation commissioner, during her tenure, she kept posting in her office the number of bike lanes installed in New York City against a target, which was calculated based on manual field reports. So imagine someone in that seat with access to much more rigorous information across multiple different mobility modes that can allow that person to inspire department staff, fend off attackers and NIMBYAs by highlighting collective actions of the work that's being done by the agency and making results clear to the public for ongoing accountability. So stuff like this is enabling can be really transformative when we think about setting up additional work to be done. So on the next slide, next piece of this MORE framework is R for rebuild. On the next slide, there's four dominant segments here. Curb and parking management, road safety and speed management, certainly a top problem for Americans. And then congestion reduction and pricing, sustainable physical infrastructure, which is a very large bucket. And so if we go to the next slide, starting with curb and parking management, cars are currently allocated 75% of New York City road space despite a rise of delivery, curbside dining, and more sustainable options. And by the way, 24% of that is sidewalks, and less than 1% are uh, space for car-free bus lanes or bike lanes. And so there's 3 million free parking spaces despite those changing urban demands and our cities be- are becoming what I'm calling almost like relics of old technology without change. And so the next slide, there's a number of really interesting startups in this space. One of them called bait I'll call Curb Management Plus. They provide solar powered cameras to monitor curb and nearby lanes, plus free license plates. So allow cities to view their curb inventory, analyze demand and understand violations. So cities could stop there and use they only for planning and adjusting on a static basis about how they think about curb allocation and supply, or they can use it in force against those violations, whether it's parking restrictions, loading zones not being used correctly, double parking, parking and bike lanes. Uh, one of my own personal <laughs> pain points uh, when I'm riding through the city that you see here. And so really allows for much more dynamic and thoughtful management of the curb. Next slide. So next part of this MORE framework, you know, O stands for offer. And if we think about what are some of the segments here, there's a lot within this space. I'll be focusing right now in the light electric vehicle space. I always love to discuss tech and transit and pedestrian. Um, I think there's actually some pretty cool pedestrian stuff going on. And so on the next slide, again, there's so many sizes and use cases for individual vehicle alternatives. And I want to spend just a quick brief moment dispelling the believe or understand that micro-mobility is only bikes. Even from a personal commuter side, there's a huge range, right? You know, Skateboards, scooters, one-wheels, two wheels for like fun park trips, furry friend ride-alongs, which you can see in one of these images, really versatile players like an e-bike for fast commuting, hauling cargo, mopeds and motorcycles for longer trips. And then there's a really exciting class of hybrids that are developing that are suited and built for urban use cases and keep you covered from the elements. And so on the next slide, with those different form factors in mind, you can think about a couple different areas here with an offer. So consumer usage, LEVs, parcel delivery, food delivery, and then we'll call like LEV adjacent. So what might be parking for these types of vehicles to so different types of accessories. And so from starting from a segment here on parcel delivery, there's 3.6 million deliveries per day in New York City alone. There's been 2x growth in this space in the last three years. And that's Overall, from a volume perspective, the equivalent of every other person in New York receiving a package per day, which is uh, dramatic in terms of size and scale. And what's largely used to deliver these packages today are large gas-powered trucks that come from large distribution centers outside of urban areas and then idle at the curb in order to load, unload, and distribute within neighborhoods. So on the next slide, one startup here who's doing some really interesting work is called Hive. They're currently based in the U.K., And they provide end-to-end parcel management. So they take an aggregate bulk collection from distribution centers and sort at a consolidation center and then do final delivery by bike, cargo bike, and electric van. So for all of our mobility enthusiasts out there, they're covering both middle mile and last mile. And for just that last mile, cargo bikes are shown to make package deliveries about 60% faster than delivery vans in urban areas and about 90% less emissions. And so a company like Hived is completely rethinking the value chain for deliveries with this kind of model, and I can't wait for even more modes to be layered on to that kind of approaches. I know there's an ongoing joke that's not a joke about could electric barges be playing a role in this in many kind of larger urban cities that are along waterways. And then if we go to the next slide, on the consumer side, there's a lot of pain points on existing transportation options and opportunities from health to speed. One big one to focus on here is the cost of owning a car per month in most cities, In New York is upwards of $1,000 a month. And a friend once called cars penthouse transportation. That's Shabazz Stewart from Uni, and that we really need to get more options for folks to address affordability. And so on the next slide, do you just want to take a quick moment to talk about City Bike because I think it really speaks to the ways that cycling can build resilient urban transportation through bikes. Last year, City Bike had 31 million rides, 1.5 million unique riders, so really operating at a scale. And the system is 28, 28,000 bikes. And if we were to compare City Bike to transit systems in the U.S., it would be the 25th largest. I think that that's an exciting stat and also a complicated stat. And that it tells me two things. One, we need to get more people riding transit in the U.S. And then two, bike share can be this great alternative and really be working well. Especially impactful when we think about the fact that bikes in New York City have less than 1% of street space and don't receive public funding. So this is a pretty dramatic scale. And then next slide. And this Lyft made an acquisition of PBSC to kind of add to this bike share and micro mobility arsenal last year which expanded kind of the scope to about 60 different micromobility systems around the world. And has done some really interesting things. I think Europe is far ahead of the US at this moment in terms of using national recovery and resiliency plan funding coming out of the pandemic to focus on climate investments in particular. And they've done a lot of work on the mobility sector, just given size of emissions in that space. Next slide. So, last but not least, for the this more framework is and for maintain. Uh, remember, it's very sexy <laughs> maintenance. And there's a few key areas here to call out, right? Grid uptime and management, asset operations and repairs, battery management and recycling, and then fleet routing and efficiency. And if we go to the next slide, we talked about this a little bit earlier. EVs a really important part of the transition, but our electrical grids today don't have the capacity to support those kinds of changes. And so that's. Stat that I hope stays with everyone is like, it's going to cost us $125 billion to upgrade the grid in the US for large EVs. Only five billion in funding dedicated today, and so we know that electric vehicles promise lower ongoing costs, and that but that can be pretty variable at the moment. So, for example, in California today, we see about a four hundred percent difference in energy pricing across the day. And when you compare that to gas, kind of diesel comparatives nearby, the variance is something like twenty percent. And so, we're already starting to see some of these grid constraints impact pricing, that could impact how people think about you know transitioning to these vehicles. And so, grid energy management is going to become increasingly important, especially given constrained energy supply to support this. Um, and fleet operators are probably going to be the first and earliest uptake given the need for uptime, reliable service. And so, another company working in this space is called Amp Control. They monitor grid pricing and constraints to automate charging schedules to ensure on time deployment of vehicles while reducing costs for EV fleets. It also can recommend things like. Alternative utility options like vehicle to grid and be incorporating ongoing technologies in that way, and also predicts and alerts to any kind of hardware issues to ensure high charging infrastructure uptime. And so next and last slide, a lot of time talking about what sucks in cities and our planet today. But the great thing is is like climate transformed. I'm sure everyone who's on now are all builders and problem solvers. And so problems and pain points mean opportunities to us, and we can change how people move from A to B together. And I'm really excited to be here and to be part of this discussion. I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation with you, Paul.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Laura. Laura, one of the things that I focus squarely on in terms of not just conversations like these, but conversations across all the verticals we cover, is the issue of practicality, right? And whether you think about it through a realistic lens or a dreamer's lens, right? And again, like like all good presentations, you've put a practical twist on a dreamer's goal, right? But I want to talk about a couple of things in the US context. I do think that it's important that you looked at this through and naturally through a New York lens, right? And You've alluded to this. I'm in Chicago, not like right now. New York is not yeah. Chicago. Chicago is not Kansas City. Kansas City is not Albuquerque, New Mexico, right? There are varies greatly in the U.S. context. Talk a little bit again, focusing on feel about mobility. Focus on the American driving mindset. And I remember having a conversation with the Corey Connolly, who runs the climate program for the government of Michigan, and he was saying to me that they plan to have two million registered EVs in Michigan by twenty twenty five. And I said to, to Corey offline because I wasn't going to say that in front of the audience that that is complete and utter bullshit. And then <laughs> All right? Yeah. yeah, put it this way to population adjust this, and because I'm just bitchy like that and did the math, basically that would imply 40 million EVs registered in the United States in the next four years.
1: Yeah. Right? It's happen. Yeah.
0: Talk a little bit about the mindset, how cities sort of walk this line between the driving mindset in the United States, which is holding back EV adoption, let's be clear, and what they're trying to achieve in terms of changing infrastructure. So New York City, with 1% of the space being offered to bikes, that number goes considerably higher. Talk about the challenges there.
1: I think it is cities are complicated and the political environment is complicated, as we all know. I think that what I'm... And so making some of these bigger changes requires what's broadly called political will, which is basically being able to speak about these changes in a way that feels like you're not going to get not elected the next time, or there isn't going to be major blow up, or that if there's pushback, that's going to be short-lived and then, then go downstream. And so one of the things that I think is exciting is that cities for a long time, major American cities have said, yes, Copenhagen transformed into the spike utopia and sustainable transportation utopia with transit and other investments. That's not us. But when you look at Brussels, right, making major moves to rethink the structure of the city, when you see what London's doing with ultra low emission zone, Paris, right, with all of the work over the last 20 years, have seen vehicular traffic decrease about 70% over 20 years. Those are the kinds of use cases and case studies that I think are incredibly relevant, right, to other contexts and start to show and pave a path for how do we make change? It doesn't have to be overnight, but over the span of 10 years. And the toolkit itself is not complicated, right, in terms of dedicating more space, like slowing speeds, enabling things like ultra low emission zone that cause people to rethink the choice that they have because at the end of the day, this is a crisis moment, right, for our cities, and I think we should be treating it in that way and that we're losing a lot from congestion-related causes and climate change is real. New York City is flooding on a consistent basis even if we reach 1.5 degrees of warming, much of the financial district in New York City is going to be flooded. Much of Chicago in terms of the lakefront, D.C., at three degrees of warming will be flooded up to like the National Monument. (laughs) And so there's real consequences of not taking action that although it would impinge some uh, degree of discomfort, I guess, to someone who's used to driving a car. I don't understand that as someone who grew up in Chicago (laughs) and who's Never owned a car myself. The idea of being stuck in traffic for an hour every day as being comfortable is like a, a hard one for me to see. But I think that it's an important mindset to have because we need to, for folks who are transitioning trips, enable a trip that's just as short and provides a degree of comfort. And so oftentimes when we're thinking about reducing vehicle traffic, we do need to think about how are we making investments in transit infrastructure, right? What does that look like specifically in reliability? So Wait times between buses, for example, between public infrastructure, reliability of bike lanes and other networks that can be alternatives, dedicated bus only lanes, and so that people can have a great experience. I think one of the things that's been talked about a lot is like actually getting somewhere on bike is oftentimes like the shortest and fastest way that you can get somewhere. And so then people make decisions not because they care about the environment always, but because they need to get somewhere on time. They don't want to spend a lot of money, <laughs> right? They have other things that they're optimizing for. And how do we make sure that all those other things are there? And so that making a choice for public transit and biking on these alternative modes makes sense for individuals, in addition to making sense for kind of cities and the environment.
0: So, Lori, it's funny. So, when we think about the intersection between policy, corporate consumer, yeah. right? I'm rapidly coming to the conclusion that the mindset that corporates are the bottleneck or government is the bottleneck is wrong. I think the consumer is the bottleneck and because I think that, and again, this is an indictment of people, <laughs> we are lazy and we don't like making decisions that are structurally inconvenient for us and the like. So is this going to require governments taking very harsh action that, again, as you alluded to, there's a whole notion that politicians need to get re-elected, right? But is what we need hard decisions from government to say, sorry, like in the London case, a great example. I have dozens of friends in London who just are so pissed off when they drive around London who just can't think of more full-letter words to call cyclists, right? But you've just yeah. shown that London is a successful case study of where we can be. Right. right. Do, do A is the consumer the bottleneck, and B do we require tougher action from governments to prevent that bottleneck?
1: Yeah, consumers is the bottleneck. I think everyone is a bottleneck at different points in time. (laughs) So it's hard to blame just consumers. I'm fascinated by the changes in delivery that we've seen over the last five years, right? The stat that now the equivalent of half of New York households, which is a similar trend that we're seeing in cities nationally across the US, are receiving a package every single day, right? Shows the level of convenience and desire to receive something at your whim, right? And then What are some of the ecosystems that we build to ensure that if that's the case, that things are getting there in a more sustainable way efficiently and all of that? So I think that business from a flywheel, I think, is important in this context, right? Where is it a consumer that's making a decision and we should be rethinking how we structure streets based on that? based on changing behavior profiles, is it that governments take the lead in being market makers, which is something that I get incredibly excited by because it can lead to different different aspects of consumer decision-making. As part of governments, as decision-makers, I think that carrots and sticks are important. Right? So in the U.S. to date, we've really done more of the carrot model, right? The Inflation Reduction Act is a great example of the government enacting once in a lifetime, it feels like incentives to really think about transforming US-based economies. So it's better for you to buy a heat pump or better for you to buy solar because it's actually going to reduce the amount of energy consumption in your household, which is going to save you money over time. You can write off some of the earlier expenses to that So a lot of that's exciting. Unfortunately, a lot of that funding is focused on single family homes and gets much more complicated at a kind of multifamily kind of urban-based context. And so I do think that the types of sticks that we've seen when climate-based actions that are data-driven can be involved and instigated into laws like the EULAs are important. And it's not like London rolled out and your friends will probably tell you, right? They didn't roll it out to 3.5 million people to start, right? They started with, central business district two or three years later they expanded and then they expanded again and they expanded again and now it's a 3.5 million people (laughs) right and so starting with the areas that have the existing transportation infrastructure that have the highest use cases and highest needs i think is a great way to start because i can almost guarantee that someone who's going on average something like three miles per hour (laughs) in lower manhattan on a peak time during the week is not having a great time either nor is it good for congestions and businesses nearby that actually need to get goods delivered.
0: Right. But again, you have in the New York context and again I think this is very specific to this that the subway system or the MTA is struggling for economic viability. I was reading something the other day was saying that around 25% of the budget is covered by fares. fares. Yeah. Right? So how do we think about this in terms of in terms of economic viability? right? Because again, there's $100 trillion that needs to get spent in the next 50 years. We've got to find an extra $120 billion to build that grid modernization in the United States, which hasn't been accounted for yet. Find
1: it somewhere, yeah. (laughs) That's got
0: to magically appear from somewhere. It can't all come from government. It can't all come from the private sector. It needs to be partnerships there. But how do we think about this from an economic viability standpoint? How do we get the New York subway system to cover its cost?
1: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of options there too that I do get excited about is congestion pricing conservatively in New York City is expected to generate about a billion dollars of revenue per year. If some of the exclusions are removed, uh, that number is gonna increase rapidly in terms of what that would look like. Second and common urbanist debate, but if we were to charge for parking, right, in parts of dense American cities, even if you look at those 3 million parking spaces, I don't know, only 50% of them are close to transit and they're only 50% occupied and you can only charge a small amount of dollars. Super top-down math gets you to something like $7 billion um, in annual revenue. And that's with my like dumb, dumb top-down math uh, versus folks like uh, Stephen Smith, who's the former CEO of Cord. They'd done this work at a much more granular level of detail for New York and for a number of other cities and their number based on having different types of vehicles. So you have residential, commercial, loading zones, et cetera, something like $20 billion a year in terms of rental revenues. And so I think that there's a number of ways to think about better urban management can generate revenues that can be funded back into investments in public transit and other sectors as well. In addition to all of the other things that you can layer on in terms of public-private partnerships. I think city is a great example here, right? City Bike is a fully private company owned by Lyft has a contract with the city. So zero dollars to the city. In fact, we give kind of revenue share back to the city itself, but are operating a system that is facilitating over 30 million rides on an annual basis. And so there's lots of ways to like, also bring in private sector players to be kind of serving a different additional parts of the market in addition to like fixing some of the core, how do you generate more revenue to send back to build out the transit network further? So correct me if I'm
0: wrong, I think the in London, it costs 40 pounds a day to drive your car in the city of London. I think it's gone up from 20 to 40 pounds. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong on that, right? And again, this is a true success story. And I just, I can't help but think that at a minimum, charging UPS and FedEx to do this, right? Solves so many, so many problems. And let's be clear, if FedEx is, if we're seeing 3.6 million packages delivered to New York City each day, there's some margin there for congestion pricing.
1: Right. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. And that that's where that variability of charging, I think it's re- gets really important in terms of like individual pricing, business, commercial pricing, and what does that structure and what does that look like?
0: I've always been, for someone who you've spent time in Europe, I spent a lot of time in London, catching the train in Europe is something you don't even think twice about it, right? There are numerous European cities that, well, France, for example, is banning effectively all domestic flights under two hours. What role does rail play in urban mobility given the level of infrastructure that would be that would be required? I catch the bus in Chicago. I can't recall the last time I catch the subway. Yeah. I catch it in New York, but I catch it, all the time. It's my motor transport in London. What's the role of rail?
1: Yeah. Rail uh, with all these existing infrastructure systems that we've built out, I think we should be driving as many people onto rail as we possibly can because it oftentimes is the fastest way to take longer trips within larger built environments. I think one of the problems from growing up in a city like Chicago, for example, from growing up in Chicago, Chicago has a hub and spoke model, right? When it built out its rail. And so if you live anywhere in the spokes, it's incredibly difficult to use that transportation system effectively and on a day-to-day basis. And so in many cities and building out additional rail is incredibly expensive and it almost feels as if we've like lost the muscle for it in the U.S., right? Just for building a couple of incremental stops in New York, it costs many billions of dollars. And in terms of investment, I think there's something like a billion dollars per mile of subway roadway um, in terms of the going number. But that's why, and in a number of Latin American cities, Bogota probably being the most prominent of these, you're seeing a lot of bus rapid transit networks that are low cost and expensive and can function in a lot of ways like rail if properly set up and by properly set up that means that you need to have dedicated lanes some degree of division between a vehicle lane so that remains a dedicated lane you can have stops that are elevated somewhat similar or not elevated but um, elevated is best right for easy kind of egress um, ingress and then three you can time lights so that it's facilitating like easy kind of pass through of of that roadway. Those are three relatively inexpensive pieces to implement. And we've seen massive networks of buses being built out. And in Bogota, they had completely based on protests after COVID that ripped apart. Some of the bus lines had to rebuild those, quickly rebuild them within the period of a couple months. Mexico City is another place that has really done a lot with busways and dedicated busways to make that efficient. And so I think making buses <laughs> cool again <laughs> and thinking through that. I was just having someone, a conversation with some of the MTA the other day, like how much do we love in you know, New York? Like Aquafina took over the like MTA PA system for a while. In Chicago, like the Santa train, <laughs> right, is <laughs> a hallmark of the the CTA. Like, couldn't we be kind of having a bunch of really interesting corporate partnerships and making some of these experiences, maybe it's not every single bus or every single train, but actually pretty interesting. Spotify sponsoring a car, right? So you're having like a cool artist of the month. I don't know, there's a lot of ways to think about how we make taking public transit, this really interesting and differentiated experience in addition to solving the unmasked hierarchy, right? We are talking about earlier, the like, I need to get there faster, I need to get there cheap. And, you know, I want it to have, to be a relatively good experience.
0: And all the corporate partnerships imply significant revenue
1: opportunities for cities. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's just ways that you can think about concessions, right, corporate partnerships, all of that. There's many ways of layering on additional business models beyond just fair collection.
0: I'm not advocating this, but the ferry system in Sydney went from unprofitable to profitable the moment they put bars in the ferry. They put bars <laughs> and uh, concessions on each ferry. I'm not recommending that for the New York subway, but that is a statement that is a statement. Quick question from Eric. Do you think the problems with electric micromobility charging we are seeing in New York, especially in the delivery community, will help cities take a broader view of EV charging infrastructure that would be more inclusive to include cars, trucks and buses?
1: Yeah. Eric is pointing out something that is a major pain point I've talked to Eric about before too, which is that we have all this federal dollars coming down into American cities and a lot of dollars dedicated to building out electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And even when those dollars get distributed at a state level to Con Ed or an urban level, they're specifically tagged to building out big EVs. And so one of the things I think that cities can potentially have a lot of autonomy in doing. And some of the problems that we're seeing with some of the some of the lower quality kind of batteries that have been out there is to actually think about setting stipulations and local regulations around how those dollars get distributed, such that, for example, if you're within, if you're building out a curbside EV charger, that it's a one trench and done, and that there's kind of open licensing for a battery charging hub to be put next to it. If a bike share system is is next to it for connection to create a electrolyte station or you could create stipulations around having a, something that in the same way that you have a cord that you pull out to charge an EV, could you have a simple cable that was built to the 70% of battery kind of charging specs, which are common to be charging an EV battery there as well. In addition to like some of the larger kind of solutions like a Row or others. And so I think that there's a lot of ways that cities could kind of create local stipulations that use those dollars that are coming in that are sizable from a federal level to really be innovative about having some of these more like multimodal hubs.
0: Doesn't that imply you need to have ubiquitous charging ports and the like? Again, one of the the big complaints about particularly in the EV in the EV space and I'm not as familiar what it means for sort of other LEVs, is that the plug you use to charge your Tesla is different from the plug you use to charge your BMW. Yeah. I think as I said, do we require mandates that these things need to be ubiquitous?
1: Yeah. So there's already for we've looked at this at, at Lyft in the past too for the standard batteries that are used on most EVs, about 70% of the plug points are the same. And so there is an idea of what a not quite universal, but somewhat universal kind of charge point could be. Um, so there's certainly that. And then there's in the same way that EV companies have experimented with, like, a, many have a bring-your-own cable, right? So at a consumer level, the cable isn't attached. Like, use a consumer know that you have an electric vehicle, so you're bringing it. So there's many different aspects like that that can be investigated. On the bike share side of the house, it's estimated that electrifying just 20 percent of city bike stations could eliminate something like 80 to nine percent of battery swaps and so a nearly equivalent amount of emissions and so that's an and also right when we talk about like why do consumers pick a particular mode for e-bikes because of their popularity in a system like city bike, part of it's because of their availability so not only could you reduce the emissions but you can massively increase like the uptime and availability of those devices as well
0: that went by very 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 quickly just let's get you out of here on this I'm sure you probably will never claim success in this, but what would define success for you?
1: Yeah. At the end of the day, we want to make an impact in urban environments on these massive climate challenges that we have ahead of us. And so it's working with entrepreneurs from day one to get their capital stack in place so that it's good for them, investors, and cities so that they have the right tools to build in places that most need them and are taking a whole of city approach or so bringing in kind of justice, worthy and equity dollars from the beginning to think about expanding to either lower income or lower density zones. It's kind of uh, seeing some of these companies succeed and expand and support or seeing some of these companies succeed and support cities, both in the U.S. and then globally, and really starting to see some of those changes take place that we need to see happen over the next 10 to 20 years.
0: Thank you. We are going to do this Again, very soon. We'll follow your journey. When does do you have an official date? Can you talk about official dates and letters yet?
1: No official dates yet.
0: No official dates yet. We will have you back in any capacity you want, Laura. Thank you so much. We'll get this all edited up on climatetransform.com in the next couple of days. Thank you and good luck with everything.
1: Thank you, Paul. Thanks so much.